0: So, Father, that is our heart's desire and cry today that you would fill this place with your glory, that we would catch a glimpse of who you are, Father, in the name of Jesus. And we do affirm what we just sang, that, Holy Spirit, you are welcomed here, and that, Lord God, by your Spirit, I do pray that you would prick hearts, save souls, add to your church, change lives. God, we ask it in the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray, amen. Amen and amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Exodus chapter 20. If you are new to the scriptures and are not familiar with uh, where things are found in the Bible, this is the second book of the Bible starting from your left, the book of Exodus chapter 20, the book of Exodus chapter 20. Let me thank those of you who have been uh, praying for our family Uh, in this transition. uh, We found a house. Amen. And uh, we are honored and pleased by that. Uh, Some of you may want details. Well, where are you living? We are living where my wife wants to live. So uh, she picked the house. Happy wife, happy life. And uh, in my younger days, I would have had a lot of ego. Um, But no, that's what the missus wanted so that's what she got amen so exodus chapter 20 exodus chapter 20 this is a section of scripture that we would call the 10 commandments and we have been in a series about time where we have been analyzing and trying to deduce and figure out what does the Word of God have to say about time. We talked, for example, last week that um, when we die and should we choose to be buried and not cremated, um, on our tombstone there will be two sets of dates, the date of our birth, the date of our death, those two dates no control over. But there will be something a little tiny dash nestled in between those two dates that we do have control over. That's time. Moses saw the seriousness of time. That's why we began with what Moses wrote in Psalm chapter 90 when he said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. James, in his epistle, cautions us against presupposing that tomorrow is promised. He says, come, you who say tomorrow, I will do thus and so. The arrogance of thinking that you'll even get to tomorrow. No, James isn't saying to not be strategic. He's not saying to not think about tomorrow. What he's striking against is the arrogance that tomorrow is promised to us. That's why Mark Twain, what he said, is so such Mark Twain and so insightful that youth tends to be a gift wasted on the young. And part of what he was getting at here is one of the things that youth are not struck by is their own sense of immortality, excuse me, their own sense of mortality, the fact that tomorrow is not promised. So I want us to walk through this most valuable of commodities, time. What does the word of God have to say with how we should handle it, how we should steward it? As we come to Exodus chapter 20, this section known as the Ten Commandments, it's interesting to me that the longest allotment of biblical real estate that God allocates To the commandments is the fourth commandment, which is a commandment to take a Sabbath, which has to do about time. So if you can just study your Bible and you just count the words, God spends the most time in the Ten Commandments talking about how he wants us to handle time. Look at verse eight. God says, remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now, some of you would say, Oh, well, that's law. I am not under law. Look at verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea. So now he, he's taking us back pre-law. He's taking us to the creation. To the example of God and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord, underline this word, blessed, blessed, blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Amen. Nestled in the heart of New York City is the world's second-largest non-chain photography and video store. It's called B and Photography. It's a peculiar store. Any given day, eight to nine thousand people come in and out of the store, uh, purchasing things, looking at things. Even more so on a daily basis, um, go to their their website and check out and purchase products via the web. I, I call this store a peculiar store because it's it's owned by a group of Hasidic Jews. And a part of what this means to be Hasidic Jews, you take the Sabbath seriously. And so, to tell you how, how seriously they take the Sabbath, these Hasidic Jews who own the world's second largest non retail or, or uh, non retail photo store, t- t- non chain photo store, to tell you how seriously they take it, every Friday at 1 o'clock they shut down. 1 p.m. in the afternoon, they close the, the doors. Why? Because Sabbath begins for them at six, and they want to spend time preparing for the Sabbath. So from Friday, one o'clock in the afternoon through Saturday, their doors are closed. And I love this one. You can't even purchase anything online. I love it. But business is booming. Tracking with that? This This isn't a little mom and pop deal. Business is booming, right, even on Black Friday, the busiest shopping day in America, the acidic Jews at one o 'clock shut it down when other stores are opening up earlier and staying through all throughout the night they shut it down in fact one individual in the new york times article they, they interviewed these uh, these hasidic jews who who own bnh photography one individual uh, says to them e- even on black friday how could you do that on black friday i love the response he just kind of shrugged his shoulder the director and he says we answer to a higher authority It's amazing the seriousness. And one of the things I've loved about living in New York is just on Saturdays seeing our Jewish friends, the seriousness in which they take the Sabbath. There was a time in our nation, here I'm expanding the conversation from Jews, I'm just saying there was a time in our nation, believe it or not where our country took Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, seriously. Our nation took this to be so serious that woven into the laws of our nation were a series of laws governing conduct and behavior on the Sabbath. They're called the blue laws. These blue laws... This nation, many, 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 many years ago, says we want to honor God with the Sabbath. So they came up with these laws. Look with me on the screen. George Washington, our first president, was once stopped in Connecticut for violating the state's law forbidding travel on the Sabbath. president stopped. In the 1800s in Arkansas, a man by the name of James Armstrong was fined $25. In the 1800s, $25 for digging potatoes in his field on the Sabbath. And John Meeks was also fined $22.50 for shooting squirrels on the Sabbath. Oh, how times have changed. Can you imagine sitting at Pete's Coffee? You've got your laptop out and all of a sudden cops just walk in. They're there to buy a cup of coffee. And one of the cops looks looking at you, typing an email. And the cop says, is that a work email? Saturday. Are you sending a work email? And he writes you a ticket for like $500 for sending a work email on a Sabbath. Well, well friends, as, as preposterous as that sounds, that's, that's kind of what the blue laws were. They took seriously what God's word has to say about Sabbath. Now, needless to say, we are, we are far away from that. And I understand the very nature of this sermon. Let me just kind of draw a parenthesis here. This is not a shouting sermon. I ain't going to get a whole bunch of hand claps here because I want to press into something. And I want to I challenge our thinking and let the word of God speak into the spaces of our hearts and lives. We live in a culture that that honors busyness. We live in a culture that says, find your identity and productivity. We live in a culture that knows nothing of Sabbath rest. So this sermon here is going to stretch our thinking. And the question on the table is how we drift so far from here. I, I think part of it has to do with a lack of biblical teaching on this. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor um, for years growing up in the church. And man, every time the doors of the church were opened, I, I was there and I, I served in ministry. And uh, I, I've gone to Bible colleges and seminaries. At these Bible colleges and seminaries, they required you to go to chapel where you heard another speaker. I've literally heard thousands upon thousands of sermons. And and as I was thinking this week, how many sermons have I actually heard on the Sabbath? Maybe three. Maybe three. Now, Now, why is this? I think part of it is, is that we have a faulty hermeneutic. Let me bring my language down. We have a faulty methodology of Bible study. We talk about hermeneutics, we're talking about how one studies the Bible. So, so some of you all, more sophisticated theologians, you're saying to me right now, Brian, uh, Pastor Brian, we are in the book of Exodus, Exodus is law, we don't have to do this. Now, let me just stop you right here. There are three types of laws. You need to get this. You need to understand it. I want you to write this down. When we talk about the Old Testament law, there's three types of law. Uh, One type is ceremonial law. Ceremonial law pretty much says you mess up, atone for your sins, buy a bull, buy a goat, buy a pigeon, uh, bring that uh, perfect lamb offering into the presence of God, kill it, and that will atone for your sins. That's ceremonial laws. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that we don't have to do that anymore because, praise God, Jesus Christ became our spotless lamb on the cross. He died in our place and for our sins. So we don't have to come to abundant life bringing our little lambs every single Sunday. Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin hath left a crimson stain but he's washed it white as snow. Ceremonial law done away with. There's another kind of law. It's called civil law. The idea of civil law, it it speaks of various instructions and prohibitions on things like food. So, God, if you just read through the Old Testament, if you read through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, if you're a new believer, don't start out in Leviticus. You will die a slow death if you start in Leviticus. Even Gandhi says in his autobiography, in his autobiography, Gandhi talks of the time in which some Christians were trying to proselytize him, and they gave him a Bible to read. And Gandhi says, Gandhi says, he says, I made it through Genesis great, Exodus great. When I got to Leviticus, I could barely keep my eyes open. If brother Gandhi could barely keep his eyes open, all right, you start in John. All right, but if you read through Leviticus, we see all these prohibitions about things you can eat and things you can't eat. Well, we know that's done away with because in Acts chapter ten, Peter's staying over Simon the Tanner's house. God gives him a vision, rolls down a sheet with all of these, you know, you know pork is on it, chitlins is on it, hog mong, all this wonderful stuff is on it, with Louisiana hot sauce, and he's got all that stuff on it. And Peter is saying, "No, I can't eat this. It's unclean." And God's saying, "How dare you call anything I've created to be unclean?" So these were unique civil laws that God was giving to the people under a theocratic form of government. It's dangerous to take laws under a theocracy and to apply it to a democracy. But there's a third kind of law, which is still binding today. It's called the moral law. When We talk about the moral law. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. It is this moral law that Jesus speaks to when he comes to earth. If you just read Matthew chapter 5, the first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount... Here is Jesus saying, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. And the law he's talking about primarily has to do with the moral law. So he says, let's talk about adultery. I'm not getting away with adultery. Instead, I'm upping the ante. Under the Old Testament, adultery was defined as someone sleeping with someone else's wife. I say to you, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman with lust for her. So that we come to this passage. And the Ten Commandments is all about moral law. So I'm trying to figure out when in church history we put an asterisk next to the fourth commandment. It's, it's bad hermeneutics. It's bad Bible study methods for me to say, I don't cheat on my wife. And I don't take a Sabbath. I just, I just want to lay that before you. We quiet up in here today. <laughs> those two things don't go. I don't steal, and I don't take a Sabbath. Huh? So, so I, I want us to just process this. And this is one of those messages we're, we're just going to have to sit with. And again, I just want to call your attention to, for those of you who are sophisticated, well, the book of Hebrews says Jesus is my Sabbath. That's right. But he's talking about salvation. And what he's specifically saying is you don't have to labor to get saved. That's what Hebrews is talking about. We are saved by grace through faith. So we enter into the kingdom and we enter into a state of rest. And that state of rest is I don't have to do good things for God to accept me. But he accepts me through his son, Jesus Christ. He is my Sabbath. And yet he says, I want to call you here now. Now, So I I think, here's the question. Why don't I take a Sabbath? I think one of it, just bad Bible study methods, bad hermeneutics. I think a second reason, and I'm just going to touch it, and I ain't going to linger long, and I'm going to get, get out of it. I think a second more painful reason is, some of us are sitting here going, I don't think I got time to take a Sabbath. Because for whatever reason, Some of us are at such a pace in our lifestyle where time, mortgage payments, keeping up with the Joneses, a sense of entitlement forces me to work around the clock. And what that reveals is my lifestyle has become my functional savior. So, this message, I want to inspire us to contemplate about a Sabbath because when we Sabbath, we raise a wartime countercultural fist. In a culture and a society that says, you are what you do. When we Sabbath once a week and rest in God, we are saying, I am not my job. I am not what I produce. I am not my zip code. I am a child of God. So this is the example. If you just read the gospels, Jesus Sabbaths. This is what he does. Now, I know this is tough for us. We live in one of the most expensive places in the world. The bay. I mean, finding housing here was crazy. This <laughs> is crazy. And I understand it. It's difficult. It's tough. And we're going to have to ease our way into this. I, I don't give this sermon to guilt you. Guilt will never change the fundamental structures of our heart. Guilt is a horrible change agent. Instead, I give this message on Sabbath to inspire you to wander into the land of blessing, which is Sabbath. Now, what do you mean by that? Look back at verse 11. So here's God, fourth commandment. He's saying, I'm calling you into this. I'm commanding you. Just think of the irony. I am commanding you rest. For in six days, verse 11, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that is in them, and rested, rested, rested. We'll unpack that in just a few moments on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord, and I had you underline it, blessed, blessed, blessed. Not you. He blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that the Hebrew word, our, our text is originally written in language called Hebrew, the Hebrew word for blessed, it means it means favor. It means delight. It means, I like this one, strength. It, it means it means happiness. Watch this. God, in this text, He's not saying I'm going to bless you. The text says that God blessed the place. And what is the place? The place is the Sabbath. So God is saying, I've got strength here. I've got delight here. I've got happiness here. I've got favor here. If you want strength, if you want happiness, if you want delight, if you want favor, get to this place. And this place is Sabbath. The tragedy of so many believers. So Sabbath is not just some obligatory command. I got to eat, make up my bed. I got to eat my vegetables. I got to, no, no, no. God is saying, I'm for your joy. That there's delight here. There's rest here. There's happiness here. There's favor. I've blessed this. Get over here. I wonder how much favor we're missing out on. I wonder how much happiness we're missing out on. I wonder how much delight we're missing out on. You know, I grew up in the, in the 80s and uh, road trips in the 80s are a lot different than what they are now. I mean, now, you know, kids want the iPads and you gotta buy the car with the DVDs and it. We didn't have all that growing up. We had a little Ford station wagon and our entertainment wasn't a DVD system, it was 20 questions. Remember that game, 20 questions? or i spy. All right. I spy something whatever. We'd play this game for hours and then on these road trips, man, every now and then, we'd pull over at a rest stop. And there that rest stop, man, there'd be a gas station. We'd refuel. And we'd pile out of that car, and we'd stretch our legs, and me and my my brother, we'd toss the football with my dad, man, and we're running around. There'd typically, there'd be a little park or some green stretch of grass there. We're running around, and then, you know, we could buy some snacks out of the vending machines. Funyuns and laters was my... That's what I liked. And so we're stretching our legs and we're replenishing and we're refueling. And all of this happens at the rest stop. Now watch this. The rest stop is not some addendum to the journey. It's a part of the journey. It's what we needed to get what we need to move on for the next stretch of highway that was before us. God says, I've got you on a journey, but you don't have the capacity to get to where I want you to go unless periodically once a week you take a break Break and rest. You get to this place. And in this place, there's refueling and refreshing. It says, I'm commanding you to Sabbath. What does it mean to Sabbath? I'll talk some more about this in just a few moments. The Hebrew word for Sabbath means to stop. It is a 24-hour block of time in which I take a break from the normal. And it's not just having to do with Brian Loritz's life. It is a communal act. So I want you to look back at our text in verse 10. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not. You shall not do any work. Your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock. I mean, even the cattle gets a break. Or the sojourner who's in your gates. He says, I want, I want the community, I want them to take a break. Now, why should I take a, take a Sabbath? Let me give you three reasons and we'll call it a day. Number one, the Sabbath is to be a sign of a peculiar people. The Sabbath as a sign of a peculiar people. It's a sign of a peculiar people. If you were to do a study on the word Sabbath, it's used 167 times in the Bible and 144 verses. The bulk of those uses is in the first five books of the Bible. It's what we would call the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Much of the Pentateuch has to do with God shaping and forming a people. In fact, what is God doing as he's shaping and forming these people? He is readying them as they go into the promised land. And he knows they're going to be among nations who don't see things the way they see it. They don't do it the way that they do it. They, they don't believe in a monotheistic God. They, they believe in pluralism and even relativism. Sound familiar? So what is God doing as he's shaping these people? The book of Leviticus can be summed up in one word, holy. The idea of holy is two ideas. It, yes, means moral purity, but holy also, watch, it means it means to be set apart, to be different. God says as he's shaping these people, I want you to be different. Now we're ready to come to the Sabbath. Look with me, if you will, on the screen at Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. In other words, God's saying, I want you to do this forever, that you may know that I, here it is, the Lord sanctify you. The idea of sanctify is the idea of holy. Again, the idea of holy is that which is set apart. So here is God saying, I'm sending you into this land. I want you to look different. I'm sending you into a nation that doesn't see it the way you see it. I'm sending you into a place. They have different philosophies on marriage and different ideologies on sexuality. They have different ways of viewing life. They have different ways of viewing money. And when you walk into that land, I am calling you to be a peculiar people. I literally want them to see you and go, that's different. So if you can just imagine the scene. Here's Israel. They're, they're an agrarian society. They settle into the promised land. It's at the height of cultivating season. Everybody's in a frantic pace. They got to get the seed sown. They got to cultivate it. It's six o'clock on a Friday night. And here are some Jebusites or Hittites or Canaanites. And they're looking at each other going, we're noticing something here. Every Friday at six, while we're out here tilling the land, cultivating the land, getting the land ready. These Jews pack up and leave. And yet, what we notice, we've been watching them for a couple years now. They get as much, if not more, crop as we do. They don't have lack, they're doing well. So, these pagan nations, I'm just imagining reading the white spaces of our Bible, they're baffled. Because here's a group of people working less than them, but making as much, if not more. And so now the Jebusites knock on one of the Jews' doors. I'm sorry, I just got to ask you. Tell me, why is it at 6 o'clock every Friday you shut down? Well, we shut down because we honor our Lord, your Lord. Who's that? And that leads into a beautiful conversation. But that conversation gets started because they look different. I live in New York city right now. Can't wait to get out here. Can't wait to move out here. Uh, But recently God smiled on us in New York. He said, let there be (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Bless his holy name. Chick-fil-A opened up on 37th and 6th, right there in the heart of New York city. Um, It's right really next to times square. I was walking down the street one Sunday and this sight just just kind of got me. If you know anything about New York, it's a place of power, prestige, pace. If you've ever visited New York, I promise you, you've had this thought. Day two, why am I walking so fast? It's just kind of how we roll. And then they, I read an article that kind of got me uh, a couple months after living in New York. They call it sidewalk rage. And I'm going, oh, guilty. Because after a while living in New York, you're just walking down the street. And all of a sudden, someone stops and is texting. you, And you're going, inside your heart, you're going, really? You're going to stop right in the middle of the sidewalk? And you're going to text and sidewalk rage. But that's just New York's pace. It's power. Some of the best of the best live in New York. I mean you come to New York because of productivity. You got to crank it out and crank it out and crank it. So here I am walking down New York Sunday morning, getting ready for church, and I'm struck by this sight. There are all these people walking and walking and walking, burning the midnight, walking and walking and walking and there's Chick-fil-A closed. Peculiar. Different. My father sits on the board of Chick-fil-A. I said, dad, how's Chick-fil-A doing in New York? He says, we've busted every projection. Every projection. We're up for a banner year. Six days out the week. It is a lie from the enemy who would cease to tell you, you will not be as productive if you take a day off. It's a management principle. Work expands to the time allotted. Actually, some of your most productive people do it in a tighter space of time. So here's Chick fil A. They said, We're going to honor God. Why should I take a Sabbath? It is a sign of a peculiar people who says we will not give into the tyranny of a culture that says find your identity and productivity. We say no. It's in God. Second reason as to why we should take a Sabbath. Is the Sabbath is a shout. Of gospel identity. Again, the idea of Sabbath—it literally means to stop. It means, it means to take a break. It means cessation. And this is what we see in our passage. Here in verse ten, God says, "I want your whole household to take a break." In fact, these words are almost repeated verbatim in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse fourteen. Look at with me on the screen. Uh, God says, "But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, or, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant, your female servant, may rest as well as you." Here is God speaking through Moses, reading the people of God on the precipice for entering to the promise land. And God is saying, stop. I want you to have one day when you do nothing. Whew. One Christian psychologist says he's convinced that the reason why so many Christians don't Sabbath, he says, because we're uncomfortable with the silence And we're uncomfortable with the silence because to stop means I have to deal with what's percolating under the hood of my heart. Hear me to stop everything and to go into a 24 hour period of cessation. Puts me on a collision course with dealing with the identity infrastructures of my soul. All of us wrestle with this thing of misplaced identity. All of us, all of us, all of us. We fundamentally wrestle with the question, who am I? If you ever seen the movie, Chariots of Fire, Harold Abrams, the great sprinter, right before the hundred yard dash, he says to his trainer, I have 10 seconds to prove my existence. What is he saying here? I am my performance. If I can update the analogy. Uh, Many of us have heard of the name Ronda Rousey. And here's Ronda Rousey. She gets clocked. She loses for the first time and doesn't come out of her house for six months. What does that say? She had a misplaced identity where she says, I am my performance. Sabbath makes you confront that. Sabbath is sort of like an MRI. Anybody here ever had an MRI before? If you've ever had an MRI, it says you've got to be still for a prolonged period of time. Because the only way the doctor is going to find out what's lurking underneath the hood is for you to be still. The only way we really know what's lurking in our hearts. Be still. So I've been on an adventure into Sabbath says, I'm going to try it. It's been a real gift to me by God's grace. Every Friday at 6 PM, I shut it down till Saturday, 6 PM. Sometimes I I do, uh, I've wrestled with this. Sometimes I, um, I I have to preach somewhere, but I go, Jesus preached on the Sabbath. Okay. God's speaking to me on that. I think I've got a good example in Jesus. But so how does my Sabbath look different? I, I said, for example, I'm going to stop. No social media, no Facebook, no Twitter, no uh, no Instagram. I'm not checking comments on blogs. I'm not, and, and the first couple of times I did this, man, I felt like I was, I was an addict coming down off of some heroin addiction. Right? <laughs> because I just automatically find myself reaching for my phone, automatically find myself reaching to click on the email app or reaching to click on Twitter. And what did this person say? And reaching to click on Facebook. And in that moment, here's what I discover. I discover, Brian, your identity is not as much in God as you thought it was. You don't know how to unplug. Unplug. You don't know how to not send an email. You don't know how to not respond immediately to a text. You're too plugged in. What about you? What about you? If you get nothing else, I say, I want you to get this. Hear it. The Sabbath is the one day of the week, hear this paradox, where we are completely unproductive and at the same time completely loved by God. The Sabbath is a statement of gospel identity where I choose a day, and I think we've got freedom, doesn't have to be Friday. Saturday. Choose a day where I say, I am not my work. I am completely unproductive and completely loved by God at the same time. Because we serve a God who does not love me according to my performance or lack thereof. He says to us what he said of Jesus. He says of Jesus in Matthew 3. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love you. He says in Matthew 3, Jesus hadn't performed a miracle yet. You need to rest in that. Let's go home on this one. Third reason to take a Sabbath. Number one, the Sabbath is a sign of a peculiar people. Number two, the Sabbath is a shout of gospel identity. Number three, the Sabbath as sheer delight. Look at Genesis 2, 2 to 3 with me on the screen. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rests. Now, <laughs> What does that mean? I mean, is God going, oh. man, the grand Canyon took a lot out of me. <laughs> no, I mean, the Bible says that the God we serve, he he neither slumbers nor sleeps. So this is not the idea that God's got to recuperate his creative or physical energies. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. The Hebrew word for rested is really the idea of delighted. And here is God. He's looking at creation and he's just enjoying it. If you've ever been to Cape Town, South Africa, I promise you on that day, God had to go tabletop mountain, boom, pat myself on the back for that one off the chain. This is God. He's reveling in. He's enjoying. That's the idea of rested so that the Sabbath, I don't want you to see it as a have to. Don't view the Sabbath as a plate of broccoli. No, it's red velvet. Velvet which will be at the Feast of the New Covenant. Next to Carlton's gumbo. This is what the Sabbath is. is, I want you to delight in it. So this is Matthew chapter 12. Here's Jesus walking through the grain fields with his disciples, picking heads of grain and the spiritual moral police, the referees blow the whistle and throw it. You can't do that. It's the Sabbath. And I love what Jesus says. Listen, man, ease up. The Sabbath was made for you. So don't throw all these flags and bind up what I created for your enjoyment with a bunch of legalistic rules. So I hear that and I go, if you want to play around a round of golf, play around a round of golf. If you want to go out with friends and eat good food and have good drink, non-alcoholic, then do it, do what brings you delight, it's for your delight, God saves us, and the Bible says the commands of God are not burdensome, they are for our joy, they're for our delight, I fear that we're missing out on so much, Sorry, told of a guy who's scrimped and saved as the band comes, scrimped and saved and saved all that he had and finally just bought this ticket, figured I just need to go on a cruise. I just need to chill out. So he goes on the cruise and um but when he gets on the cruise he realizes he's got a problem, man, because he walks by the dining room and um sees people eating steak and then he walks by the you know, the food stations out on the deck and he goes, Man, i sure love to have some of that, but I can't afford it. And he kind of anticipated that. So he brought it a whole bunch of top ramen noodles and Vienna sausages with him, smuggled them into his room, man. And so Monday, you know, he's nibbling on top ramen noodles and Vienna sausages Tuesday, more of the same Wednesday, more of the, well, come Thursday of that week. Yeah. He just, he couldn't take it anymore. He was walking on deck and he sees the pizza station and he looks at the guy working behind the pizza station. He goes, man, I'd really love a a slice of pizza, but I can't afford it the guy puts the slice of pizza on his plate and goes, what do you mean you can't afford it? The guy says, well, how much is it? He goes, it's included in the price of your ticket, dummy. Here this guy is snacking on Vienna sausages, missing out on steak and filet mignon that you can eat as much as you want of because he didn't realize what was included in the package. God says, I saved you by grace. I've set you free. And how many of us are spiritually snacking on Vienna sausages? When God says, I got filet mignon over here for you. I got strength and favor and rest and blessings. Get your backside over here. That's what the Sabbath is. That's what he's calling us to. As we ready our hearts to say, God, what would you have us do here? The book of Hebrews says, Jesus is our Sabbath. He's our rest. Every other world religion, some way, shape, or form, just says, do more good things and you'll be accepted. You know, Prince dies recently, and I read a great, fascinating article about about Prince knocking on doors on Saturday morning, sharing his faith. If you know anything about Jehovah's Witness, he's probably doing that to get into 144,000. The gospel frees us from that. The gospel says you can't perform. You can't do enough good things for me to accept you. That's the bad news. The good news of the gospel is God says, I've got you covered. I've done one good thing, and that is I've sent my only son, Jesus Christ, who covers it all. Now I'm inviting you into that rest.